You're listening to the More on Manufacturing podcast, where we talk about improving the value and operation of your business. Join Mike, Kevin, and the occasional guest for the latest on sales optimization, operational leadership, cash flow management, lean strategies, preparing for the sale of your company, business intelligence, and much more. Hi, I'm Mike Sibley, leader of the James Moore Manufacturing Team. I'm here with Kevin Golden, one of my partners and also a member of the James Moore Manufacturing Team. Uh, joining us today on today's episode is Katie Howard, a senior human resource consultant at James Moore. Uh, today, we've got some really important updates uh, coming down the pike from an HR issue, DOL issue, and some other things. So Katie's here to share some some insights and some news. Uh, not always what we want to hear, but it's important that we hear it and start thinking about things now. So Katie, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I, I just kind of prefaced it there. HR related issues. Really, these are business issues at, at the end of the day. These are pretty important and it's very complicated. Sometimes things seem easy when you just hear something, but this is this isn't pretty complicated. stuff. So, so why don't you just take us through what are some what's some of the big news and some of the big things happening at Beyond well, the I think the one topic that kind of everybody is in the forefront of mind is the Department of Labor is proposing to change the FLSA standards. So the Florida, um, sorry, the Federal Law Standards Act when it comes to salary levels um, for salaried employees, uh, where right now it's roughly 35,000 a year and it's gonna increase if it gets passed. I wanna emphasize that if it gets passed to 55,000 and then you're highly compensated would go from like 140 to I believe 145 as well. So pretty big significant jumps. Um, that being said, it, it it's kind of a little bit of a, but like I said, nothing's come through yet and we're kind of waiting to hear next steps. So Katie, let me ask you a quick question. So let's just take a quick, easy example. If I'm an employee or I, I have uh, and I'm making probably say 45,000. So I'm over the current threshold of 35,000, but underneath that 55,000 you just mentioned there, what does that actually mean to me as an employee? What does that mean to my employer as far as, okay, now things may change um, as it relates to that may have not have been applicable before? Well, it's all about planning. And part of that planning is really looking at what the job is. Is it truly exempt from overtime because that's what salary is. It just means as if the um, position is or not exempt from overtime and there's actual testing. And the good news is with all this change, the testing itself is not gonna change. Standards stay the same, salary is what's going to increase. But the best practice is just to start looking at those positions that may be on the cusp, maybe need to be evaluated, um, checking the job description. Are they truly meeting those salary tests to be exempt? Because that employee potentially would be better off being a, a non-exempt employee and being hourly. And then if they are truly exempt, what does that look like financially in making those adjustments to get those employees to that threshold point? So Katie, this, this was something that was coming up a few years ago or uh, maybe longer than that, right? And then got turned back and maybe you could touch on that because I think some people will remember and then got all worried and turned back. And so what, what was that process like? So there was a little bit of panic, I believe in 2016 when the threshold was looking to be increased to 47 and it looked like it was really going to happen. And a lot of employers kind of made the mistake and rushed to make these employee changes. And then Texas courts pulled it and they never pushed it through. So, oops, now you can't, you know, 
you absolutely could take money back from your employees, probably shouldn't. So a lot of these employees got those increases and then the employees were stuck with the bill, which is why we emphasize put a plan in place, but don't act immediately. So, so, but that $55,000 threshold means, Hey, if you've got somebody who's currently salaried at, I don't know, 50 grand, this, this can be, this, this is something you need to look at. For absolutely. A lot of times we get this with, you know, in the manufacturing world, majority of your staff is probably labor intensive. So they're already hourly, but your executives, some of your administrative employees, they kind of fall into the gray area, not so much your directors and above, but there are a lot of working managers that could potentially, you know, some people put them in salary, some people put them in hourly and they kind of flow in between. I've seen a lot with bookkeepers. We love to make a bookkeeper a salary position. Nine times out of 10, it should probably be an hourly position. So that being said, you got to look at the financial impact. Are you just going to have to increase your salary budget by that amount? Or are you going to have to look at that, that employee's hours and make them hourly and say, hey, how much time are they actually working? And what does that overtime impact look like to my budget as well? So it's a lot of you accountants favorite thing, numbers, and it crosses over into HR a lot, specifically when we deal with overtime and salaries. Well, it almost sounds like, it almost sounds like, you know, we're, we're talking numbers here. Like you said, we, we love to jump on numbers because it's easy, but you're talking more about really position. What are they doing? Responsibilities are still a factor in all of this. As opposed a hundred percent. And that yeah, hasn't changed. No. That's the testing portion has not changed. All the four testings still match up to where they are, whether it's creative role, whether it's a professional role, whether it's an executive assistant role. And that's all on the Department of Labor's website. Great reference point for anyone kind of questioning. Obviously, we're always here to help as well. But it's just very important to start, number one, with the job description. Is the job description really what the role is doing? Do you have a job description? So many times our clients don't even have those really need to get those in place and really specify those essential functions as it leads to how they should be paid. So it, it sounds like, Katie, you know, I, like you said, it sounds like you would think having something like a job description, that's just obvious, but it sounds like we're, maybe what is obvious isn't always so obvious. So kind of going back to what you said earlier, that, hey, there was a little bit of a rush on that in 2016, employers jumped the gun. You mentioned, it sounds like you mentioned a few things that maybe we can already be doing, looking at salaries, looking at job descriptions, but what what specifically should uh, maybe our listeners and manufacturers be doing now that won't be jumping that gun? So they aren't saying, oh, shoot, I, I did too. I went overboard. I crossed that line, but I still want to be prepared. I want to make sure I'm not behind the eight ball. Should this pass? Um, what, what should they be doing and focusing on now that kind of puts them in that sweet spot? I think they need to be meeting with their HR teams and management teams and making sure the jobs are reflected to what specifically to the salary jobs. You need to do it all the time anyway for all the jobs, but because this is kind of looming out there, it's specific to the salary jobs. Really look at those job descriptions and start working with those testings to make sure the jobs that may need to be increased to that 55 threshold are truly, truly, truly salaried. And then going through those line items. And a lot of times you got to get your employees involved. I don't know sometimes what my employees are doing and what's really involved in their job. And I might be working off a job description from like 1993. So clearly it's changed. It's different. So we need to update it to reflect true things. Because a lot of times, like I said, we have working managers 
that yes, they may be managing employees, but they're also doing the job at the same time. More than likely, those people need overtime, which is a significant economic impact. Overtime can add up really, really quick. Well, I say not to mention all the effects. I mean, everybody has gone through with COVID, remote workforce, and those things where people, it's great, we can do more from wherever we are, but it sounds like you've really got to be in tune with with what your employers are doing, whether that's in an office setting or even working at home, as that's become so common. Right. And here's the thing. With the job description, Stephanie mentioned the remote, we just brought this up to a potential new client that for their remote employees, making sure the job description say that this is a remote position. If it is a hybrid position, make sure the job description includes that it's a hybrid position. If it's on site, include that it's on site. Because if you don't have that, then a lot of employees are pushing back with returning to the work site and they want to stay home. If it's not on the job description, it's kind of like lacking that backbone to say, no, your job requires you to be in the office. Mm-hmm something to consider there. Is there, we've got a number of manufacturers that are all over the size range in terms of the number of employees. So does, does this, is, is there an impact? Is this, if you've got three employees, it's the same deal as if you've got 300? With a DOL, it typically is. It, It affects employee, you know, level zero to level a million. So yes, with the Department of Labor, it's not like the EEOC where it kicks off at 15. This is pretty much impacts everybody. Correct. Good question, Mike. Thanks. Okay. Well, good. I mean, so this is something definitely um, everybody needs to be thinking about. And really for that matter, whether it goes to 55 or not, this is something that everybody, all manufacturers should be looking at to make sure they're not creating an issue. Yeah. And the one thing I didn't mention earlier, and I should have, is if the change goes through, they have also put an auto schedule. So it will start to automatically increase throughout time. They won't, Mm -hmm. it will get to a point where they don't have to vote on it like this. It will just automatically change. So keeping up on that too is a whole nother ball of wax. Wow. Um, Great info. Let's, let's maybe jump on to something else. We, we, you know, we were talking before we talked about, um, workers comp in terms of another area that's that's always got its issues. Can you kind of talk about what you're seeing trends and things that we should be thinking about there as well? Um, just being compliant is huge with workers comp. And I, you know, I've been in HR, I'm going to age myself, unfortunately, for over 20 years. And there is this taboo with workers comp about on the employer side and on the employee side, you know, somebody who files workers comp, ew, bad, you know, oh, I'm an employer. I'm going to get in trouble because I'm having all these, you know, issues. And I try to like, oh, we'll pay for your urgent care. We'll take care of it, but we're not going to file it. Big no, no, always file. And we always get the like cliche come back at you. Like, well, what do I file? Do I file a paper cut? And the answer is this, you kind of could have to. And I have a an actual, you know, we always said that, well, you know, that paper cut could turn to a staff infection and the employee. And I know that's like a worst case scenario, but I actually know somebody who went through the worst case scenario recently, stepped on a nail manufacturing site, did not puncture the skin, just a red spot. Unfortunately, the employee had diabetes and it broke out into infection and within a week subsequently lost their foot. So here's something that they were luckily reported right away but, you know, a lot of people have been like, well, I didn't even break my skin. Why would I report that? And, and it's just one of those worst case catastrophic scenarios that that's exactly why we encourage report everything. Let the carrier take care of it. Make sure the carrier is doing their job and taking care of your employees. Because what we don't want is people to like sit at home at lunchtime and watch all the lawyer commercials come across. 
you know, have you been injured at work? And that that's what happens. And I, I get all my clients all the time. If you can get them back to work in any capacity, do it. Just do it because the quicker they get back to work, the quicker the lost time goes down and the less likely they are to file litigation. So, Katie, would you say from that standpoint, I mean, it almost sounds like uh, reporting, I don't know, maybe it's not fair to say, but almost reporting more is better that, to your knowledge as things happen, as things let disclose it and all. That's not, uh, I can understand how that could seem like taboo or seem like I'm putting myself behind the eight ball by you now having so many reports or incidences or so forth. But it sounds like that's more of the way to go is to, hey, if you're aware of it, um, you know, report it. What, what about, I mean, is that true? And then what about um, what you don't know? Say that same person does that, ha that happens to them. They say, oh, I'm not really hurting. It's no big deal. I mean, I know if I bump into a table or something like that at work and I don't usually go report that unless it's, you know, a uh, major should, how, how does that work with employers of what they don't know? Um, therefore they're unable to necessarily report an incident such as that. I think communication is key and educating your employees because a lot of times employees are fearful that if they file something, they're going to get in trouble. So vice versa, you've got to get onto your managers. And I, I hate to say it, but our managers get the brunt of all, all from both ways, leadership and staff. It's very difficult, but they're also, you know, the main point of contact for the employees. So the communication is going to be key and, obviously encouraging your employees, please let us know. And it doesn't necessarily mean they have to get treatment, but at least there's some kind of incident report, you know, maybe the cut, but seven, you know, now it's been two weeks and stuff's not healing. Well, we already have documentation that yes, at that time you refused treatment. Are you asking for treatment now? And you can proceed. And so many, oftentimes we say less is more, less is more. In the case of competent workers compensation, more is more. You really just need to keep informed, um, keep communicating with your employees. Also, if your manager sees something, they need to see something, say something. You know, if your employee is refusing to fill out an incident report, well, that might be performance management and you need to do disciplinary action. Or you find out your managers aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Again, that is performance management. Well, you see a lot of, um, a lot of manufacturers often have, at least larger ones, have safety programs. And they're trying to make sure... It's probably very rare to see somebody obviously step on a nail, not even puncture it and lead to that. That's that's probably I'm hoping the extreme of Absolutely. an example or something. But you know, the most part you might have little bitty things here and there, not a big deal. But you know, a lot of companies have gone to the point of having safety so they can eliminate catastrophic type injuries or or worse. Um, but not all of them, not all companies have, not especially when you get into a little bit of the smaller ones that don't have the resources. But you know, to me it seems like you know, you do want to try to not have claims anytime that you can avoid, especially if you can do it by setting up the proper protocol, not just ignoring it, ignoring issues, but setting up the protocol so they don't happen to begin with. So that, that to me seems like that's part of this process. And a lot of times, if you can engage in an occupational health, like pre-hire fitness test, like you've already, but let me emphasize, when I say pre-hire, you've already extended the offer. This is not conditional of the offer. They have to. The offer's been extended. Now you send your employee to an occupational house. So like if their job requires them to push, pull, lift a certain poundage, you're checking that they can actually do it. Um, I did this with a county government many years ago, and we had a reduction because unfortunately our you know public safety officers, they're lifting people, they're chasing people. And if you can't really do it, 
you're going to have a blown shoulder. You're going to have a blown back. You're going to have blow at your knee. And by doing it all on pre-hire assessment, we actually reduced our claims by about $150,000. So it's something to consider. I know there's an additional cost in it, but if you're seeing a pattern of behavior, maybe, you know, at the pre-hire moment, then you can kind of weed out who really couldn't do the job to begin with. Definitely. And keep in mind, you know, what, when we talk on this show, when we speak, a lot of the speakers and all that we have come, we always center it around what value to the company, right? Sometimes that value is a dollar and cents, right? You know, hey, it doesn't take but one or two, you know, claims that weren't handled properly. Now, next thing you know, you're kind of blowing uh, through your company value on claims like this, as opposed to the preventative measures we've talked about some. But also, it's a value of um, your largest asset for many clients, many manufacturers, not your people, right? Yeah. I mean, so I could imagine that, um, you know, these are not only a dollars and cents issues, but these are valued employees issues, which, you know, become harder and harder to come by. So when we think about value uh, to our listeners, value to our manufacturers, right? It's not only that long-term value of, okay, yeah, I haven't had a lot of HR issues, a lot of incidents, a lot of um, uh, claims and so forth, but it's also that longevity of taking care of those key people and those valued employees that can get you to that point that of longevity of where you want to be as an organization. I mean, Katie, anything else you can add to that as far as how these items or HR issues in general can help add value to our, um, our company? Well, proactive and communication are going to be positive on your culture no matter what. And employees are really looking for a positive culture where they feel heard, they feel safe, they feel, you know, they fit in. All these things are, are big reasons why people, you know, in, stay at their positions. And we all know retention is huge. It just costs way more to recruit people than it costs to retain people. So keeping your people satisfied and safe is going to motivate them and keep them on board and, and keep them on longer. Well, think about it too. I mean, if you're having huge safety and injury issues and it's plaguing you, not just a one-off, that's going to hurt your bottom line. And yeah. if, if it hurts your bottom line, then, you know, if you're selling your business based on a multiple of EBITDA, you're going to be valueless. And, you know, sometimes you can you can take into consideration, oh, we had a one-time issue, blah, blah, it's an ad back, it doesn't hurt your value. But if it's a continuous issue um, with the culture and the operations, your bottom line is probably not going to be as good as it could be. And it's going to, that's going to drag if you try to sell the company. For well, sure. it's funny because I've seen two types of companies. I've seen you're very proactive. Something happens to an employee, constant communication, constant status, constant communication with their TPA, making sure the case manager is meeting up on top mm -hmm. of it, on top of it. And the outcomes with that group, positive, you know, they have lower accidents. And when they do, they're back to work faster. They're taking care of their employees, still feel valued. And then they've seen the other where, you know, let's hide it. Let's not do it. It's negative. It's punitive. You feel like attacked if you have an accident and it's a revolving door. Nobody feels safe and secure in their workplace. So yeah, what's the motivation to stay there? Yeah, absolutely. So as we, uh, you know, started getting to the end here, anything else in the manufacturing world that as it relates to HR that we should be uh, thinking about? Well, I will say this. I think uh, there are positive aspects to, um, you know, a little bit of an economic downturn, sometimes election years impact. And where we have struggled with candidate polls recently, we have seen an uptick 
in, in the size of the pool that our employers are getting to shop from, which is fantastic. You know, our employer for the last three years, I feel like I've been on a, a recording just saying, I don't know. I've never seen a market like this. You can't find staff. I don't have the magic wand. I wish I did. I don't know where these people are. Well, it's like, it seems they're coming back. So when you're posting jobs, now you're going to have to be competitive for this talent. When you're posting jobs, make sure you're not just posting the job description, advertise your brand, advertise what you're great for, advertise what a day in the life is, and then hit some of the points of the job. I know it sounds crazy, but culture and brand sells you to a candidate pool way more than a boring job description. Then when you get them in and you start screening them out, that's when you really start talking about the job. But you got to hook them in. It's just like fishing. You got to bait the hook and then pull them in. Awesome. Thank you for that. Well, Katie, thank you very much for all the information. It's I'm sure we'll have some more updates from, from our HR group as things happen, uh, you know, between the HRs in a minute and some of the other news that comes out. I'm sure you keep us all updated as these things change. So thank you very much for being on here today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really liked it. Sure. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening today. Uh, as always, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out. Katie and her team are always willing to answer all these HR questions or you can reach out to myself or Kevin and uh, we'll help put you in contact. Uh, otherwise, hope you have a great rest of your day. To learn more about James Moore and Company's manufacturing services, go to jmco.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our More on Manufacturing series to receive updates when new videos and podcasts are released. If you'd like to be a guest or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, contact us on our website. You can also follow us on social media for more news as the landscape on manufacturing continues to rapidly evolve.